Hi, hello, how are you? My name is Elizabeth Dale and for those of you that haven't listened before, I am a Cornish writer, uh, blogger and sometimes podcaster that is slightly obsessed with local history and this story today is going to be no exception. I'm, I'm letting you into a little of the workings of my strange little brain because I sometimes find that I come across um, random characters in my research and for some reason they just stick in my head and I'm not sure if this happens to you, maybe with the characters out of a book or something like that, and, and they just play on your mind a little bit and you think to yourself, I really wanna know more about this person. And this happened to me, oh gosh, about two years ago. I came across a newspaper article about a woman called Emma Vincent. And in the article, the journalist just reported that Emma Vincent had been sent to Bobman Lunatic Asylum as a pauper and that on searching her house authorities had found a large amount of gold and that was it that that was kind of the end of the article now for me as someone who could be said to have an overactive imagination this little snippet of information just had so many possibilities for me and it just stuck with me but I was in the process of researching something else so I just made a note of her name and the date, Emma Vincent, West Britain, 28th of August 1900, and really not much more than that. And then a few months ago, I, I just came across that note that I had made and I decided that I really did want to look into it a little bit more. So I looked her up in the census records for 1881 and saw that she was living in an address in Falmouth, um, that she was originally from St Moore's and that she was unmarried and living with her older brother and sister. And then I got distracted again and Emma Vincent just, she just stayed on the pages of my notepad. But now I have decided that I, I really think her story is one that needs to be told and that is worth exploring. So I've been doing a lot more digging in the last few weeks and I think that I'm just about ready to share Emma Vincent's story with you so that we really together can try and work out what happened, why Emma was committed to the asylum, how she came to be hiding so much money, what her worth was and why despite being such a wealthy woman, she actually remained in Bodmin and Asylum until her death in 1911. Emma Vincent was born in St Moore's in 1833 and she was baptised at St Justin Roseland Church in the September of that year. Her father was Nicholas Vincent, a fisherman, and her mother was Jane. Jane Woon and Nicholas Vincent had married in March 1813 and Emma appears to have been the last of 11 children five boys and six girls and it appears there were also a couple of sets of twins amongst those children. 
Just three months after Emma's christening, however, her father died at the age of 48. And nothing much else is really mentioned about the family for the next few years. But I think it's really telling to just the strength of Jane, Emma's mother, that in the 1841 census, we find them all still living together in St Moore's Parish. And Jane is described as working as a greengrocer, so selling fruit and veg from a shop or even a stall, perhaps. And her older boys, Joseph and Sherrock, who are both 15 and, and most likely twins, and William and Henry, who are both 14, so presumably twins as well, they are all recorded as fishermen like their father. The oldest son, Nicholas, however, he is noted as a tide waiter, which I had to look up. And apparently it's basically um, a customs officer. So someone who was checking the goods that were being landed from a ship so that the duty owed could be calculated. And in the subsequent years, we see that the, the Vincent family are mostly living together in St Moore's. Although Nicholas does go off and get married, I believe, that the census records show that Jane, she remained working as a greengrocer for the next 30 years and her sons were to become pilots in Falmouth Bay and her daughters were working as dressmakers. Now for those that aren't familiar with the term pilot, in this instance it, it isn't a man in the air, it is a man on the sea. <laughs> a man who was hired to, to guide boats into port basically. They were men, uh, usually local, who knew the waters really well. And of course in the 19th century there were literally hundreds of ships coming into Falmouth from all across the globe. Um, and that's kind of where gig racing comes from too. You know, the gigs were used to take the pilots out to the ship because it was kind of a, a first come first serve basis. Whoever got to the ship first, they're the ones that, that got the, the pay for bringing the ship in safely. Now on that census, Emma was not recorded as a dressmaker. I think it kind of shows us something of her level of education and obviously her intelligence that out of all of the children, she is the one that actually becomes a schoolmistress. Now sadly in 1868, Amelia, her sister, died um, and that was quickly followed by another sister, Elizabeth, in 1870. And then in 1873, Emma's mother, Jane, dies too. Um, and this is when things start to really change in Emma's life. Up until this point, the family had all been living together in, in St Moore's Parish. A lot of the children were still, even as adults, living in the same house be because very few of them had, had actually gone off to get married. But after the death of their mother, the family starts to go their separate ways. They move away from St Moore's and um, at first Emma is found living at New Street in Falmouth with two of her brothers, William and Henry. That's one of the sets of twins. Now, Henry was a pilot for Trinity House and William was working as a customs officer. So, you know, respectable, respectable jobs. Then a few years later, when Emma is 47 years old, so already now at this point an established, you know, what they would have called a spinster in those days. Emma is um, still living with Henry 
Um, and then there is also another unmarried sister, Mary Ann, and they are all living at number three, Raleigh Place in Falmouth. Now, Raleigh Place is still there today. It's um, a quiet terrace of houses not far from Killigrew Park. Uh, And these were not particularly fancy properties, but they were certainly comfortable and in what would be considered a a good area in in the town. Now, what happens next um, and how it affected Emma's mental health, we are only ever really guessing at. But within the space of just a few years, another six of her siblings die. Henry and Marianne that she's living with, as well as Philippa, Joseph, Chirac and her eldest brother, Nicholas. And we know that all these siblings, they they had been really close all of their lives. As I said, they, they lived together into adulthood. You know, the fact that they remained unmarried, most of them, Um, you know, would have created an extremely strong bond between them all. Um, And and I'm sure that loss would have been devastating for Emma. Now, Emma's sister, Mary Ann, that she had been living with, was, was the last of her siblings to pass away. And that was in 1894. And the first report of Emma's erratic behaviour is mentioned in the newspapers five years after this in 1899. On the 11th of November 1899, the papers report that Emma Vincent, an elderly person, bearing in mind she was in her 60s at that point, well, she appeared in Falmouth Police Court, charged with being drunk and disorderly at Raleigh Place. The papers report that Emma was behaving in an erratic, eccentric manner in the court. And when the clerk explained what she was being charged with, she is said to have exclaimed, Oh no, for shame, sir, I'm not guilty. Nothing of the sort. Now, PC Williams was the arresting officer and he explained that she had been behaving in a, quote, extraordinary manner at about one o'clock in the morning end quote and that he had been obliged to arrest her. Emma tried to tell the court that some boys had damaged her front door but apparently when she spoke there was laughter in the court. Now I'm not really sure why that would have been. All I know is that the newspapers reported that the court broke into laughter after she spoke. I'm not sure if that was because she was behaving strangely or whether they they felt there was something funny with what she was telling them. But whatever the case, you know, she was being laughed at. Superintendent Bear um, said that she was causing his officers, quote, no end of trouble and that he felt that Emma should not be left in the house unsupervised. As it was, Emma was fined seven shillings and sixpence and it was also explained to her that along with the fine, she would be charged one shilling for the cab that had brought her to the court. And this apparently upset Emma a great deal who started, quote, talking loudly and misbehaving. And the mayor who was overseeing the proceedings told her that she could either pay or go to prison for a week. Rather ominously, He also said that if she came before them again, she would, quote, be sent to Bodmin to have the state of your mind inquired into, end quote. 
In August 1900, Emma Vincent was before the Falmouth Police Court again, and this time it was her neighbours Sarah and Eliza Roberts who were accusing her of threatening behaviour. They said that she was unbearable and erratic and shouted at them day and night, beating on their door with a broom and threatening them. Superintendent Bear was there again, and he said that the police had been inundated with complaints from Raleigh Place um, and that part of the problem was that Emma Vincent claimed that the pavement in front of her house belonged to her and she refused to let anybody use it and had come up with all kinds of schemes to try and stop them. The Cornish Echo newspaper wrote that Emma, quote, caused some amusement in the court by her actions which were very eccentric end quote and that she told them that she quote had her own private lawyers doctors and servants and a cab and that all her affairs were in order several times while giving evidence she burst into delirious laughter which seemed to contradict her frequent statement that she was not mad End quote. Unfortunately, the paper also said that Emma told rambling stories and even at one point um, she spoke to the mayor's empty chair. Now, this time she was fined £1 and 10 shillings and was again told that she must not annoy her neighbours. But sadly, two months later, on October 1900, she was back in court again this time for assaulting a woman called Annie Mock. Emma had apparently thrown a stone which had hit Annie in the face. But when asked about it in court, Emma just answered, Oh no, I I never saw her. Now, Superintendent Bear was there again. And again, he told the court that he didn't feel that she was accountable for her actions. But she was just fined. £2, 12 shillings and sixpence, so the fines are going up all the time. Um, But this was her, her third time in court in 12 months, so it's hardly surprising that in May 1901, a report from the Falmouth Board of Guardians appeared in the Royal Cornwall Gazette. The report explained that Emma Vincent, a spinster and elderly resident of Raleigh Place, she was 68 at the time, had been removed because of her peculiar behaviour to an asylum. The record of her entry into the asylum records her as a pauper. The article also noted that the cost of her care was chargeable to the union, and that's the poor law uh, union in Falmouth, which was the body kind of in charge of the workhouse and also responsible for anyone that was considered destitute in the parish. So Emma Vincent is recorded in the admissions book for Bobman County Lunatic Asylum on the 10th of May 1901. And this could be the end of it you know no more than the tragic tale of an older lady who is suffering from some kind of mental illness or dementia you know that could have been the end of it but it wasn't because after Emma was admitted to the asylum the police went into her house at number three Riley Place presumably to clear out her belongings and what they found surprised everyone 
in boxes under Emma's bed, they found a large amount of gold coins, £1,236 worth, which in today's money would be an estimated £96,620. Not only that, they also discovered that she had around £400 in a bank account, which would be worth another £31,000 in today's money. And the deeds to three or four houses, according to the Royal Cornwall Gazette on the 6th of June. Now, we can only guess that Emma probably inherited much of the money and the houses, either from her parents or from her brothers and sisters that had all passed away. But why she chose to hide it, well, you know, that's another matter. Unfortunately, we don't know. Emma is never given the opportunity to explain because she is now being described by authorities and in the newspapers as a lunatic. And it is deemed that the chances of her ever being released are unlikely. Fairly quickly, it became clear that the Falmouth Board of Guardians was laying claim to all her money. One newspaper article records a meeting of the board that took place on Thursday the 13th of June. In it, mention is made of a lawyer acting on behalf of Emma's relations. The clerk comments that there is little that they, the relations, could do as the Chancellor would make the final decision. And to that, a man reported as Mr T.H. Williams commented, quote, Vincent's family won't get much of it by the time it gets to the Lord Chancellor, end quote. The Cornish Archive, Crescent Kerno, which houses literally millions of documents, photographs, maps and records all relating to Cornwall, well, it holds the official minutes for the Falmouth Board of Guardians and there are two entries in those minutes that mention Emma Vincent. The first is on the 16th of May, so six days after she was taken into Bodmin Asylum and the entry reads, quote, Mr Moyle reported that he had removed Emma Vincent to the asylum and that he had taken possession of the certain monies found on her premises, end quote. Now the monies mentioned, obviously I assume, is talking about the several hundred pounds worth of gold coins that they found in her house um, and I'm not sure if it also would have included the money that was in her bank account. And the second entry, which comes a fortnight later on the 30th of June, says, quote, The clerk reported that since the last meeting, one of the nephews of Emma Vincent, lunatic, had produced a letter purporting to have been written by Emma Vincent to her sister in Penzance, stating that she was well again and coming home the following Monday. On inquiry, it was ascertained that she was not to be, be released as stated, end quote. So the minutes, they really, they tell us two things. One, that the Falmouth Board of Guardians had taken possession of Emma's money. And two, that there were living relatives that were concerned for her. Now, who the sister mentioned is isn't clear. The only one that it could possibly be was her eldest sister Jane 
but despite many hours of research, I, I'm really sorry I haven't been able to confirm that. So, despite having so much money and it appears living relatives that were worried about her, Bobman Asylum became Emma's home for the next 10 years. And despite the image that I'm sure many of us have of Bobman Asylum, it seems that at the time that Emma was there, conditions were not too bad and that there had been significant improvements in care. A survey of the facility in March 1909 described it like this. Generally speaking, the wards are bright and attractive, the dormitories well ventilated and the beds and bedding in proper order. At that time, there were around 933 patients in all, 431 were men and 502 were women and they were all looked after by 60 attendants and 34 nurses. The same survey that recorded the conditions and recorded the patient numbers also recorded the maintenance charges for each patient which covered their care and their food and these were described in 1909 so the year before Emma's arrival as costing 11 shillings and 9 pence per patient per week. So by my dodgy calculations, that works out as 30 pounds and 11 shillings per year. So roughly, let's say 300 pounds for the time that Emma was institutionalised. So a great deal less money than the Board of Guardians had actually confiscated when they, they took possession of her assets. Even if they spent more than £300 on her care in those 10 years that she was in the asylum, she had nearly £2,000 in cash as well as the value of the houses that she owned in Falmouth. So that's a great deal of money left over and it isn't clear whether her relations ever saw any of it. Emma remained in Bobman Asylum for the next 10 years until she died on the 20th of February 1911, aged 77, and her passing was reported in the Falmouth Packet newspaper, where she was described as the youngest child of Nicholas Vincent of St Moore's. I suppose the final chapter in this story, or as far as I've been able to take it anyway, is that a notice appeared in the Western Morning News on the 25th of November 1911. It was a notice informing the public of Emma's death and asking anyone with a claim on her estate to come forward. A man called Henry Vivian Bennett was noted as the executor and I was able to trace him after sort of digging around in his family tree. I really couldn't find any connection between him and, and Emma. As far as I'm able to tell, he, he wasn't related to her in any way, nor was his wife or either of their sets of, of parents. But he did live on Killigrew Street, which is not far from Raleigh Place. So perhaps he was a friend or alternatively, Bennett's did work as a butler and also as a gardener. So he could have been one of those servants that Emma had alluded to. 
Anyway, I hope that this notice implies that someone was acting on her behalf and perhaps that her relations actually did inherit some of her fortune. And that's where our story of Emma Vincent really comes to an end. And I hope that you've enjoyed it. I guess what attracted me to this story was the mystery that surrounded it, really, of this woman who uh, was described as a pauper but had boxes of gold coins under her bed. And I hope we've kind of resolved that in that, you know, it was probably the unfortunate death of so many of her siblings that left her a very wealthy woman. But that, of course, you know, couldn't save her from, from her ill health. Of course, it's really difficult and, and, you know, actually inappropriate to kind of try and look at her story through our modern eyes, through a modern lens, because we're bound to find faults in her care. But what we have to remember is that in those days, mental health was still very much a taboo subject. There were still those that believed that, that those with mental illness were dangerous or even possessed by evil spirits. It just really, really wasn't understood. And it was something that you had to hide. You know, people would literally lock you away for forever in Emma's case. But I guess for me, what's really frustrating is that Emma was brought before the authorities, before the courts on multiple occasions. And it was clear to them that she was unwell. Superintendent Bear said on more than one occasion that he didn't feel that she should be living on her own. And yet they just kept finding her and sending her back into the community. And you see, with all the money that she had, there was no reason that she couldn't have been cared for privately at home. They could have had a live-in carer for her. But of course, that money had conveniently been confiscated by the authorities. And it seems that at that time, Emma just didn't have someone to advocate for her. There was no one, it appears, that had her best interests at heart, perhaps her relations down in Penzance. They just didn't feel qualified, you know, or didn't feel able to go up against the authorities. So she just remained in an asylum until she died, which is ultimately just just so sad. And I, I can't help feeling that there are certain parts of her story that are just, you know, they are familiar to us even today. But what I do have to say is that after telling you about Emma's story... I kind of feel a little bit like I've exercised a ghost or something. Emma has been playing on my mind for a very long time. And now that I've dug into her life and I've I've tried to establish what actually happened to her, I feel a bit better about it. I feel like, not, not that the mystery has been solved, but that the picture of her life is perhaps a little clearer you know things are a little less foggy so I really hope that you've enjoyed going on this little journey through Emma Vincent's life with me I just found it completely fascinating um, and I, I think that's what I love uh, about what I do is that it's not about you know the big stories and the razzmatazz I just love finding out about ordinary people's lives how they lived and what happened to them because i just feel there's just so much that we can we can take away from that and that we can learn from that and also 
these people shouldn't be forgotten. You know, they, they had lives, they had voices, and it's our job to remember them. Anyway, enough from me. I hope you've enjoyed your time. Um, if you have, I would really love it if you would like and and share and comment and all that stuff and maybe consider um, becoming a patron to, to help me keep researching and, and keep funding and keep finding these stories. Anyway, thank you so much. I enjoy the rest of your day. Have a fab time wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and I will speak to you soon. Bye.